Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Ashley, are you ready to destigmatize therapy? I'm ready. <laughs> so today we're talking about mental health, and um, that's something that most of us probably know that we need to pay attention to in our own lives, and yet mm-hmm. there are a lot of barriers to accessing quality care, especially when we need it most, which is mm-hmm. when, honestly, most of us go seeking it out. Yep. Uh, if you've ever wanted or needed to talk to a professional mental health provider, you probably know exactly what we're talking about. How do you find someone? How do you pay for it? If you are in therapy or counseling, or if you're prescribed a medication for your mental health, do you talk about it with your friends and family? And how do you do that? There's a lot to unpack Mm -hmm. here, just like with every topic that we (laughs) take on. Uh, We won't get to all of it today, but we're going to start this conversation because it's really, really important. Ashley, this is a complex and um, personal topic, but I'm wondering if you have any initial thoughts that you want to share with us. Yeah, so... I love this topic. I'm really glad we're talking about it. Um, I think mental health is such an important issue, and I think of this episode a little bit like a part two to our self-care conversation um, that we had a few months ago, because mental health care, when it works, um, when all the when all the, the right tools and people are in place, uh, mental health care can really provide a powerful way for people to live their fullest lives. And, um, that's what self-care really is about. Um, and unfortunately, like you mentioned, like a lot of the self-care strategies we've talked about, um, in the past, there's usually a cost involved in either paying for professional help, buying support tools like books, things like that. There's a time cost and just seeking out and finding those good resources. Um, so I just, I want to talk about that a little bit more today. I hope we get there. So I was lucky to grow up in a family that didn't stigmatize therapy. My mom actually worked in administration for a mental health hospital um, while I was growing up for several years. And my first experience with therapy actually started in elementary school. Um, This was a pretty cool – looking back, this was a really cool program. My elementary school provided group therapy with a social worker for kids who had been through something tough like death in the family or divorce, and it was called Rainbows. And, um, I guess, I guess since I, my parents got divorced when I was in kindergarten and a few years after that, I had a pretty serious health scare. Um, so I guess I was dealing with some stuff and my mom signed me up. I had no idea she did it. All I know is that I was in class one day and a lady I didn't know came to, came to the classroom and asked for me and took me to a room with like art supplies and games and other kids. And I did that every like two weeks for a couple of years. And, um, I did not know it was therapy, but uh, it was fun, and I liked it. I liked going, um, and I like getting out of class. And what is cool is that looking back, that was my first experience learning um, coping skills for dealing with, um, like, difficult situations and stress. And um, some of the things we learned are just really basic things that I think not all adults necessarily know, but some of those basic skills like not bottling up your feelings, talking to a trusted adult or friend – how to deal with anger in healthy ways, like don't hit other people, punch a pillow, go get your energy out by going outside and and play, how it's okay to cry when you're sad, all those really basic things that um, I'm really glad I learned young. It was a really healthy experience. Uh, And one of the best outcomes, I think, 
is that being exposed to that kind of thing so young, I always knew as an older teenager, as an adult, I knew that therapy existed, that it was there as a resource. Um, and I have gone back to it from time to time over the course of my life. Whenever I'm going through something difficult or dealing with a lot of stress and anxiety, I've been to a therapist to talk about stuff one-on-one. I, um, in my mid-20s, I attended a support group called Al-Anon, which is for family members um, or loved ones of, of people who are uh, dealing with alcoholism or addiction. So you've got AA for people who actually have the alcoholism and addiction issues, and you have Al-Anon for like their families and loved ones who just need to be able to talk about it with people who understand. And uh, the cool thing about groups like that is that they're free. And all of these tools have been helpful to me over the years in some way. So um, what about you? Do you have experience with this stuff? Well, first, I love your description of your early therapy experiences as a child and not really knowing that it was therapy and that it was more about just kind of learning skills of Mm -hmm. how you cope with difficult emotions that we all go through. And I think it emphasizes Mm -hmm. that these are skill sets. We don't, we don't inherently know how to deal with tough situations that happen and we all need help with them. We all need someone who has more experience to teach Mm -hmm. us how to deal with stuff. And I wish I had had that because I went through a really tough period in my adult, not adolescence in my elementary school time. My grandmother died of cancer my parents had separated, and then my grandfather got remarried, like, all within a year of, mm. of that. Um, and, and I was, I think, about 10 years old, which now talking to therapists is a really formative time. Mm-hmm. And I think it manifested itself most when I went away for summer camp for the first time for two weeks, and I hated it. I wanted, I just wanted to be home with my family Mm. and thinking back it was like my grandmother had just died like two months before (laughs) I left you know and we were really close so of course at 10 years old I just wanted to be home with my family after my grandmother died like it really makes sense looking back so I wish that I'd had therapy a little earlier like you did Mm. um but I have been to a lot of different therapists I was actually counting them up in preparation for today I'm thinking about all of the different ones I'd seen, and I think I've seen about 10. Might be more. Wow. Those are the ones I could remember. Yeah, I've I've gone to therapy off and on for about 20 years for lots of different reasons. And I've seen all kinds of providers. I've seen psychologists. I've seen psychotherapists, social workers, and pastoral counselors, probably some others. But those are the ones I could remember. And all of them have taught me something different about how to process mm. what happens in my life at different times. And most of the time, some kind of crisis got me in the door, which I alluded to at the beginning. Like, that's usually when we go mm-hmm. to a mental health providers. There's some presenting issue that gets us in the door. Yeah, But same. after, like, working through that initial issue, uh, I usually stayed for a while to work on deeper issues that had been affecting me for most of my life that these presenting issues touched on. And I talked about the kinds of people I've seen. I've also done all kinds of different therapy. So I've done talk therapy. I've done guided meditation, visualization, some hypnosis. Um, I'm really open to all the different ways that we can learn about ourselves. And I guess I'm fortunate in that I got over whatever stigma there might've been about therapy really early in my life, kind of like what you were talking about. And when I was in divinity school, we were encouraged to do our own work on this. Um, that's cool. So I took, 
Yeah. I mean, for one, I think it was because the faculty weren't equipped (laughs) to (laughs) help us deal with our issues. So they're like, you should go to the counseling center. And that was covered in our insurance. Um, So that, that was a good thing. And I took a couple of different pastoral counseling classes and there's nothing like trying to help another person through their issues that brings up your own junk that you need to work mm, on. So that I bet. that's something that helps. The other thing that's helpful for me is that I'm married to someone who studied clinical psychology. So both of us really value therapy and we've both done therapy on our own. Um, and we like talking about what we learn when we go. I guess it makes us kind of weird, but it's, <laughs> um, it's just part of our relationship. That we, we try to better understand our emotional makeup and how we process things, especially in conflict. So in a weird way, it's kind of fun for us. So if one of us goes to therapy, we usually are like, okay, so tell me what you did in therapy. Oh, what did funny. you learn? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we enjoy it. It's it's just like a fun thing. Um, even though the issues might be hard, there's something just enjoyable about like, oh, I learned this new thing about myself. Yeah. Um, but I think the toughest part is navigating the mental health field. Um, Yeah, it's really hard. We're fortunate we have good health insurance through my husband's work, but trying to find a provider who is, one, available, two, helpful, Mm -hmm. and three, likable is challenging, and you really need all of those things, at least the first two, preferably Mm -hmm. all three. Very few therapists have websites. Um, there's no way of knowing if they have any availability until you call the office. And I don't know yep. if you're like me, but I hate cold calling anybody. Yep. I'm it's such awful. a millennial. I'm such a millennial. Like, <laughs> oh, calling someone is terrible. Uh, especially when I'm um, calling for help, right? I mean, I'm already feeling vulnerable. So calling and leaving a message for someone to say, I need, I need help is just a really hard situation. So... I also yeah. have a really hard name to understand over the phone. <laughs> so I don't know. It just causes me anxiety or something. So maybe I need to go to therapy for that. It's like an anxiety hurdle you have to clear just to get the help you need for the other stuff. <laughs> no, I'm fully there with you. And I think I think it's really interesting what you said that you've uh, – when you've gone to therapy, like often it was a crisis that brought you in the door and then you ended up working through that and then staying for a while – I've been a little bit of the opposite where like a crisis gets me in the door and I go for a while, kind of get to the other side of it, get some tools um, to help me manage what's going on in my life. And then I kind of stop going and and go back to life and then kind of pick it back up again when when I need it down the road. And um, I think it's interesting that, you know, there's not like a one size fits all approach to this. It's really mm-hmm. just about being, like you said, open to the different methods, open to different people, um, and to just kind of trying something out and realizing that if it's not a good fit, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't feel like it's right, it's okay to stop and reassess and figure out what you might need and try something different. Like all of that's okay. But that last part that you were talking about, navigating the healthcare system, Oh, I feel that so hard right now. <laughs> um, I will share that I'm actually looking for somebody to talk to right now. Um, as I'm sure it is for a lot of people, I have been dealing with some anxiety lately, just trying to make sense of what's going on in the world right now and what my place in it all is. And um, these these days, it just feels sometimes like there's just this onslaught 
of stuff to deal with and process and understand and react to. And um, it's been a challenge for me to find somebody to talk to. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did um, when I decided to start looking for somebody was to check my insurer's website, um, which, like you said, it literally gave me a list of names with no other information about them. So <laughs> these people are covered in your network, whatever that means. There's no information about how much they cost, what kind of treatment approaches they use, uh, whether or not they're taking new patients. Basically, all you get is their name, their address, their phone number. So like you said, it's like it's basically cold calling people, which is awful in and of itself. But when you're adding on this layer of like, it's a personal thing that you're trying to, to accomplish. And it's, there's, it's just not something you want to talk about with a stranger. So this is what happened. After I kind of didn't really know what to do with the information for my insurer's website, I ended up calling my, um, my so we're insured through my husband's employer. They have an EAP program which um, stands for Employee Assistance Program. And they, um, a lot of people don't know they have this, first of all. It's uh, often companies will provide this service. It'll be like a certain number of visits with a healthcare professional um, before you have, and it's free, before you have to start billing your insurance for it. Um, okay. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Um, I've actually recommended it to other friends who have said, you know, mentioned they were looking for a therapist. I'm like, have you tried EAP? Because you might have a few free visits. I had an employer once that we had 10 free visits, which was amazing. Because by the time we got to 10, it was like, maybe I don't really, you know, maybe I've figured this out and I'm good. So I call the EAP number with my husband's company and it's a guy in a call center and he wouldn't really talk to me about what my coverage might be until I told him what my symptoms were, what I needed. Mm. And I just fully did not want to do that. I was like, I don't know you. You are not a, you're not a professional. You're literally answering a phone in a call center. I don't want to tell you what, what I'm anxious about. I don't want you. Cause I guess he was trying to like match me with a provider or something. I didn't, I didn't really understand, but, but I just wasn't comfortable with it. And I mean, my issues are pretty mild. What if I was somebody that had just experienced some serious trauma and I was trying to get some help and I didn't have money for that. So I was going through my EAP. I don't, and needing to tell a stranger, like clear, clear some sort of informational barrier or like validity barrier before you can even get the help you need. Just, I did not like that. Um, so I fully gave up on EAP. I found that it would only be three visits anyway. So I just figured I would cut, cut my losses. But, um, the next to so the next thing I did was I have a friend who is a clinical psychologist. She used to work here in my area. I asked her for a referral for somebody that she thought might be a good fit for me. And um, the first name she gave me was not taking new patients. Of course. Of course. The second name she gave me, though, is taking new patients but does not take my insurance. So I'm going to have to pay out of pocket, mm. which is fine um, because I've got the resources and that I need to do that. Um and at this point, I'm sick of looking. I mean, I've I've tried for months now to just clear, clear this barrier. Oh, wow. And get some help. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. So I'm just going to go with her and pay for it. And this process, though, the reason I even, like, go into all this detail is that this process has reinforced me that yet again, the systems that we have in place as a society are often set up for people to fail or not get the help that they need. For me, I have the resources. I have a background in healthcare, so I know like the the language, and it's not too intimidating for me to call somebody up. 
Um, I have the privilege of being able to pay for something out of pocket that for a referral that was recommended to me instead of just throwing a dart at the names in my network and hoping it works out. And I know a lot of people do not have those resources and that privilege, and that's really troubling to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so true. It's such a, a maze. And when I think about it the is. times when – I mean, I've gone to see therapists at different times, and I would say with different levels of severity – but at one point when, when I was single and not paid very well and didn't have good insurance, um, I went through a really like difficult bout of depression. And mm. I fortunately was already in the care of somebody when that happened. But when I mm. think about that time and like how much effort it took for me just to get up in the morning and get out of bed, yeah, to think about having to expend any of that energy to try to navigate this maze of mental health. Like I just think about how many people are suffering and don't have the energy to get on the phone and talk to somebody in a call center or try to find a mental health provider. Like people are falling through the cracks. They're falling through the cracks and they're the ones who really need the help. And not to mention the expense of it all. If you don't have good health insurance coverage or, like, in your case, you call someone. And what if somebody's only willing to make one call? What if that's all they can do, Mm -hmm. you know? And Mm -hmm. I think it's also hard to – I mean, you you had the system and, and, like, support network and you felt comfortable asking people if they could recommend somebody. But there's a lot of vulnerability in that. And not not everybody has that. Just It makes me just really sad (laughs) to think about – there are people out there who are able to help, but the barriers to getting that help are so many. It's just, mm-hmm. we've got to do something different about it. Um, to switch gears a little bit, I've also been thinking about how we stigmatize mental health with the careless words we use. And I'll be the first to admit that I'm, I'm bad about this and it's something I'm working on. But when someone, I'm going to say usually a white man, does something violent, like I don't know, Mm-hmm. shoot hundreds of people gathered at a country music festival in Las Vegas. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. What do we call it? We call it crazy. We say he he must mm-hmm. have had a mental illness. So th- that's like the first thing that we do because, of course, we're not going to call a white man a terrorist. Um, so we call him crazy. Yeah. Or we say he has a mental disorder of some kind. Um, so we attribute it to some sort of psychotic break which is problematic on really a lot of different levels, but it it excuses the behavior Mm -hmm. away, right? There's, you're attributing it to something that's beyond someone's control, but also it it stigmatizes Mm -hmm. people who have mental health issues as violent when we know that that's not true. That's not true. Yeah. It's really, really problematic. So I'm trying to work on removing the word crazy from my vocabulary, especially as we were talking about before we started the show. Um, when we're talking about people, especially, but I think in general, it's just, it's a lazy word. It's not precise. There are lots of other good words that we can use. Yeah, I agree. And I, I kind of in that vein, I uh, try not to use words like depressed when I'm just in a sad mood. Because, mm. like you said, depression is a is something. If you've experienced it, it's very different than just like being in a sad mood today. So, I try not to use words like depressed or like. I've heard folks say, I'm so ADD today. They're talking about how they're distracted or or um, they've got a lot of energy or something. Um, even though they don't actually have an ADHD diagnosis, they're just using it as a catch-all to describe, you know, certain behaviors. 
Um, and all of that stuff, I think, just kind of further stigmatizes um, folks that that have legitimate diagnoses that they're like really depend on that diagnosis to get the help they need, you know? So when we water down the diagnosis by just lumping in a whole bunch of other things with it, um, that's really unhelpful. And I think another thing I've been seeing a lot lately, um, especially online is, um, the tendency we have to armchair diagnose people. Mm. Um, so we throw around terms, clinical terms, like, bipolar disorder or narcissistic personality to describe somebody usually some famous person that's behaving a certain way we're like oh that person's a classic narcissist or whatever like that and um I think we if we don't have a background in psychology we don't need to be doing that and folks that do have a background in psychology have sort of an ethical obligation not to diagnose people that aren't in their care so they don't do that so um you know, when we just toss around clinical terms like that, we don't really understand. Um, it just further stigmatizes people who actually do have those diagnoses and don't need to be just lumped in with violent uh, criminals or uh, famous people behaving badly, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm, I'm with you on that. It seems to be a reaction to this discomfort we have with not being able to label something in a way that we understand, either within ourselves mm-hmm. or in other people. And I think about what you said about I really appreciate that. I'm not saying I'm depressed because you want to be careful about what clinical depression really is or the ADD thing. And it's like, mm-hmm. are we just uncomfortable with having times when we're just really distracted or emotionally we're just feeling really down? Like temporarily, mm-hmm. you know, is it just that we – I don't know what that's about, but there there seems to be something to it about just that need to label and diagnose and create – a way of understanding why is this happening rather than just some things are just some things just happen and there's no real good explanation for them. I'm not sure what that's all about, but there's something to that. Yeah. I think there's that and a little of like, we just think it's a cool word to say. Well, that's true So we don't put any thought into it at all. We're like, oh, I'm so depressed or whatever. And um, without really acknowledging that that's a, that is a real word Mm -hmm. (laughs) that people really need to to describe certain things so maybe we should just not use it right if you're just feeling depressed today and it's a one day occasion you probably don't have clinical depression right it's not something that comes and goes on a day-to-day basis all right well let's talk about the church a little bit so when you think about mental health and the church like does anything come to mind when you think about the faith communities you've been involved with oh you know something that's kind of interesting and also kind of sad to me I really don't think about mental health in a faith context I keep those parts of my life pretty separate uh for a lot of reasons um I've experienced things in church settings that have left me really uh, distrustful of bringing my mental health needs to my pastor or to people in the church. Um, like for example, I had a friend who was going through something pretty uh, tough with her family, and um, it was pretty embarrassing. It was a small town, and there was just a lot of it was a lot of what her family was experiencing, and she was having trouble dealing with it. And she took it to her uh, church. Um, to her pastor and then somebody she trusted in the church just to get some help processing it. And um, they violated her confidentiality Mm. pretty badly. And um, her private business was spread all over the church. And the thing that was really, what I thought was really awful about it is that it was done under the guise of like, 
well, we were just lifting you up as a prayer concern. Oh, yes. I've heard that before. (laughs) Yeah. Like people using prayer concerns or trying to, trying to frame it in this really, um, like, I don't even, I don't, I don't know this way that is like, I'm not gossiping. I'm praying for you out loud in front of a group of people sharing your private information or whatever, or I'm trying to help bring you community. You know, you need more people around you. Um, but that is incredibly hurtful when you think that your personal information is going to stay private. Um, and it doesn't. And, um, you know, for me, when I see things like that happen, uh, and I know how bad church gossip can be, it makes me really not want to bring my most personal private self into church spaces, which to me is incredibly sad. Um, and I also, you know, I've been through some, some difficult situations in my life and I've experienced people at church being really judgmental or dismissive Mm -hmm. about it. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has talked about something hard and, somebody just kind of tosses off something like, well, just pray about it or let go and let God or God only gives us as much as we can carry. And that stuff is just not helpful. (laughs) And, um, we Christians love our catchphrases. (laughs) And, um, when we're faced with really complicated things, like you mentioned earlier, we try to just explain it away with, um, something that sounds vaguely, uh, comforting or whatever. And I've even been told, um, if you went to church more, you wouldn't have this problem. Oh and my gosh. Wow. Yeah. There are folks in faith spaces who believe that mental illness doesn't really exist. Um, that mental distress is caused by sin. And if you just address the sin in your life, you'll feel better and you'll get better. And that stuff is really, really harmful. Um, but I know that this isn't everybody's experience. Um, a lot of folks take great comfort, find great comfort in their churches. But I also know that many of us feel like we have to wear a mask in our faith communities and hide our truest selves, including all the emotions and feelings that are part of our truest selves. And, you know, we've talked before a lot about how women are expected to be all things to all people, especially at church, and admitting that trying to fulfill all the um, the requirements of being a biblical woman mm-hmm. – um, Admitting that that might cause us mental distress is like admitting that you can't handle God's plan for you. And who wants to show up at church and admit that they can't do it all, that they can't be what God wants them to be or whatever. So it's just really complicated. I don't, I don't really bring um, my emotional health, mental well-being into my faith spaces. For good reason, based on the experiences <laughs> that you've shared about and it reminds me of the story that I'm writing about in Women Rise Up uh, in First Samuel of a woman named Hannah who experiences infertility. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to diagnose her, but she's exhibiting some classic signs of depression, um, including her inability to eat anything, which is one of the warning signs, or one of the signs you know that you might be experiencing depression and she's really not able to talk with her husband about it. And there's just a lot of stuff going on. So she goes to the temple to cry out to God. She's there during a festival time. So I imagine there's other people. And so she's, I want to say that she's praying maybe silently or something like there's something about her behavior. That's a little bit different. And so the priest there comes up to her and accuses her of being drunk. And yeah, cool. Right. Like, He's like, get out of here. You're acting like an idiot, basically, is what he says to her. 
Oh, man. Such an abuse of power. But what I love about Mm -hmm. this is her response. In spite of everything that she's suffering, she says to him, No, my lord, I am a woman deeply troubled, and I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Wow. Boom. Boom. She's like, you don't know me. You don't know what's going on. You don't know why I'm here. And how dare you accuse me of being drunk when all I'm doing is being what I, being my truest self in my current state of emotional Mm -hmm. health before my God. I love that. It's one of the few Mm -hmm. stories that I feel like touches on mental health at all and and shows a lot of what you were describing, which is when people, men in particular, have authority in the church and abuse their power when people are in their most vulnerable moments. I mean, he was prepared to kick her out of the temple. So Mm -hmm. I, too, worry about people who rely on their religious leaders for counseling. Um, Now, I, I should say any pastor who's been trained well should know the limitation of their ability to provide counseling. But I've heard too many troubling stories of women going to their pastors about their abusive partners, only to be fed some line from scripture about wives submitting to their husbands, or maybe like you were saying, there's something that you've done to cause this and you need to work it out. It's really an abuse of pastoral authority to use scripture in this way uh, and to go beyond what you are trained to do as a pastor. You are not a mental... Isn't that called... Sorry? Like spiritual, isn't that called spiritual abuse? Spiritual abuse. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you're, you, he's in this case using, it's a man, using scripture to keep a woman mm-hmm. in a situation that's violent. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely a form of spiritual abuse. So, you know, pastors are not mental health experts just because you're a reverend and you're putting a person's life at risk. So let's be real about that. So I will shift gears and say, as I mentioned earlier, that um, I do see a lot of value in pastoral counseling, uh, and that's different from just a regular pastor in a a church. I mean, pastoral counseling requires a lot of additional training beyond what a pastor Mm -hmm. serving a congregation usually just gets in seminary. So a lot of times someone will get a psychology degree in addition to being ordained and having a master's of divinity, or there's there's Mm -hmm. other requirements that you go through educational requirements that you have to have uh, in order to be a pastoral counselor. And so for me, I see my faith so intertwined and how I understand my life that having somebody who gets the church world and the spiritual language I'm using can be really helpful. So if you're somebody, and the other thing I'll say is that pastoral counseling places are often nonprofits and the ones that I've been to offer a sliding scale. So if... Yeah, so if payment, and they do often take insurance as well, but if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, but wants to see somebody and thinks talking to someone with a spiritual background will be helpful, you might check out pastoral counseling centers in your area. That's really cool. Yeah. And I I definitely used that when I was a poor seminary student and didn't have much money (laughs) and didn't want to just see a therapist at the at the health clinic, right, who didn't understand what I was going through spiritually. So it was a really helpful resource for me then. 
Yeah, let's link to these um, some of these resources we've mentioned. Let's be sure to link to that stuff in our show notes, like Aladon, and um, maybe if there's a particular pastoral counseling, um, like how to find how to find. A yeah, center or there should like be that. an association for an association. sure. Yeah, we'll link to that so folks can use that to find to find a good person. Excellent. So we're gonna shift gears and talk about what we're reading and what we're listening to. So Ashley, what have you been reading? So uh, this episode, I it's not a book this time. Um, I want to share something a little different. It's an essay that was shared with me last week after the Las Vegas shooting. It's called Letter to a Young Activist During Troubled Times by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And it's a really beautiful, poetic piece about resilience, um, not losing hope in difficult times, and remembering that we are made for times like these. Um, Estes is a poet and a trauma counselor who uses art, forms of art like poetry, as a healing practice for people who've experienced trauma. So I thought that fit really well with what we're talking about today. And I just picked up her book um, that was really popular a few years ago, Women Who Run With the Wolves, but I haven't started it yet. I will be sure to check back in and and, uh, fill everybody in when I um, finish it. But that's what I'm reading, Letter to a Young Activist During Troubled Times. I want to read that. That sounds really good. And Women Who Run With the Wolves. I know. That's like a classic (laughs) text. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Going old school. I look forward to hearing about that. That's that's one that I've seen on the bookshelves a lot, but for some reason have never picked up. But I know it's supposed to be really, really good. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I've been listening to Sincerely X, which is a podcast with anonymous talks. Yes. Have you heard of this? After you told me about it, I went and listened to some of these episodes. So, yes, I love it. I think it's great. It's a really cool concept of people being able to share their ideas without having to reveal their identities. Mm-hmm. So it's like a TED Talk. Uh, so, in fact, the creator, June Cohen, used to work at TED. She might mm-hmm. still work at TED, but she was a curator at TED. So the folks who come on the episodes get to say some things that are edgy because of their anonymity. And one that's really relevant for our conversation today is episode four, which is called Sad in Silicon Valley. The guy who talks about his story was an executive at a huge tech company. And one day he remembers falling asleep on the couch to take a nap. And he didn't wake up for three days. Yeah. Yeah. I know clue but his wife finally woke him up after he'd been there if it had been me i might have woken him up earlier maybe she tried maybe. i'm just saying yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that started a journey of of him working through his own mental health and he bumped up against the archaic system that we've been talking about and in mm-hmm. this talk he suggests some real ways that we can use technology and tech companies to help us determine things like when someone posts something on on a social media platform that might seem like that person's at risk for suicide, that there might be some kind of notification to the authorities. Like, that's just one example. But basically, how can we better connect providers of healthcare with people who need them using technology? It's a really interesting talk um, that you should check out. It makes sense, right, that he doesn't want to um, put his name on this talk, and yet the ideas are still available to all of us. So we'll link to that episode in the show notes. But you should should check out Sincerely X in general. They've got just really interesting talks on a whole bunch of different issues. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you turned me on to that one because I've really enjoyed it. And I did listen to this episode you just mentioned and I found it really relatable. The just the struggle of navigating the healthcare system. And this is a guy who is like rich in the tech world in Silicon Valley. And he's like, this sucks. I've been through all these providers and nobody's a good fit and Mm -hmm. none of this is working. And like, what do I do? And how have we not brought tech into this, into this space yet? How have we not like figured out how to do it? And it's all because of stigma. Right. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So totally check that one out. And he said he spent a hundred thousand dollars or something on therapy. Yeah. Right. It's something ridiculous. I mean, so folks with a hundred thousand dollars to blow can't can't get right. the help they need. Like, how are how are the rest of us? So, Katie, you are up for this episode's Kindreds of the Moment. All right. Well, this year is the twentieth anniversary of Sister Song, yay. the National Women, yay, the National Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. They just had their Let's Talk About Sex conference, which Ashley got to go to. I'm yes. very jealous, by the way. <laughs> I couldn't make it. Uh, but Sister Song has been lifting up women of color's voices for decades. They do reproductive justice training. They do movement building in the South. And they are a powerful force for justice. So we want to say happy anniversary to Sister Song. Yay. Happy anniversary, Sister Song. Um, yeah, I did get to go to the conference. It was in New Orleans this year, which was really close to me. So I was able to go and actually take some uh, coworkers and and it was really – the conference was awesome, even though um, Hurricane Nate kind of put a damper on things and, and shut things down a little early, um, sent a lot of us home early. But uh, there were over a 1,000 people there. It was such a privilege to be in attendance. Um, the energy and the just the love and the, the information that was shared, like it was all just really uh, wonderful. And, um, yeah, I'm very grateful I got to go. So that does it for this episode. Next time, we will be talking about health and wellness culture in all its complexities. Oh, can't wait for that one. Yeah. So talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 